0: Welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob, and Katie will be joining me in just a moment for today's episode, in which we had the pleasure of chatting with the Orville executive producer and writer on both the series and comics, David A. Goodman. We talked to David about the show, his involvement in creating the Krill, other science fiction influences, and writing the comics, as well as several Easter eggs included within. Make sure to go give David a follow on Twitter, at David A. Goodman, and while you're at it, you can also follow us at Quantum Drive Pod. In exciting Orville comic related news, the Orville Library Edition Volume 1 was just announced. This new edition includes all the previously released Orville comics in one book and will be available in Kindle and hardcover formats on October 18th. You can pre order it now, and if you'd like to do so while also supporting this show, you can head to the Quantum Drive, where I've placed an Amazon pre order link. Purchasing through that link won't cost you any extra money, but it will send a small commission our way, so thank you. With that, here's our conversation with David A. Goodman. Okay, so we are here with David Goodman, executive producer and writer on The Orville. And I'm going to just put it out there, full disclosure, that this is not the first time we've had a conversation. (laughs) Because I know it's going to come up. So. I wasn't going to bring it up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't either, Rob. So
0: (laughs) I'm just a full transparency type of guy. Uh, So we had a conversation last year that due to tech issues, we unfortunately lost. But in the meantime, there was a positive side to it because one, we got to wait until digressions and artifacts came out. And we've read that. And I can't wait to talk about those. And also, you gave us some homework, which was to watch Forbidden Planet. And I absolutely did. and. Now I have even more questions. Now that I've like gone back, because I watched it only like a month or two after we last talked to you, and I just revisited some of the stuff, and I'm seeing, I think, more connections than even in the show. Katie
2: Katie didn't watch it. She did you tell
1: by my (laughs) face that I was like, "Oh yeah, very quiet."
2: Please, teacher, don't call on me. I didn't read it.
1: I I didn't. I didn't watch it yet, but I will (laughs) watch it. It's on my list of things to do.
0: There's some stuff about that movie too that I didn't realize, like it being the first movie to take place completely on an alien planet and mm-hmm. have like no parts take place on Earth at all. That's amazing.
2: Yeah, there was a lot. There's a lot of stuff that got stolen by not just Roddenberry, but also Lost in Space, the original television series. They stole the production design. Erwin Allen, the producer of Lost in Space, stole the entire interior designs of the ship. The robot, the, all that stuff, he just, like, stole it. It's kind of remarkable.
0: It was a very interesting movie to watch, too, because the pacing is so different than modern movies and TV. A little languid? Yeah, and, and it <laughs> felt like an episode of a TV show and not necessarily a movie.
2: It really did. It really did. And uh, it didn't help that a lot of those actors were real television actors like Leslie Nielsen and uh, Anne Francis. I mean, these were these were not big movie stars. Sure. Walter Pigeon yeah. was, but everybody else was really people who, who would be known for their work in television
0: yeah so i know we'll get back to forbidden planet stuff as it comes up but okay we do want to talk orville things too for sure so if we kind of rewind back towards the beginning of everything okay when was the first time that the orville was presented to you as an idea or were you a part of the genesis of that
2: uh, you know seth and i talked seth McCormick and i i've worked with seth for a long time it's going on 20 years at this point, I think, uh, even longer. The third season of Family Guy, we became, well, I started working with him and we shared an interest in Star Trek and science fiction television. And he and I were talking and uh, he was throwing around this idea and then he writes the script and uh, turns it in and (laughs) they pick it up for 13 and in a very short amount of time. I mean, that was something that Fox wanted to do, but he, uh, all the way through, talked to me about it and we threw around ideas about it and then uh, so I I was there as close to the beginning as anybody and uh, then he wrote the second script on his own it's the star shall appear was actually the second episode written for the show oh wow and he showed that to me and I gave him some thoughts and then I was part of the writer's room right from the beginning
0: okay now, there's always comparisons to Orville from Star Trek. I mean, Katie and I are big Trekkies as well. I mean, I'm wearing a mm-hmm. Star Trek T-shirt and everything. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Do the nonstop comparisons to Star Trek become obnoxious at some point? Or is it a compliment that you'll hear fans say their favorite modern Trek show is the Orville right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've certainly heard that. I mean, I you know, to me, there's obviously comparisons to make. I think that Star Trek popularized the idea of of a television show on a spaceship that had kind of a military feel, people in uniforms carrying guns, but also telling these sort of metaphors for modern life. And that's something that Roddenberry popularized and other shows have used. And we're using it too, but Seth that is his own sort of take on it. I certainly don't take it as an insult that somebody says it's the best Star Trek on the air. I think that what's so interesting to me that sort of always gets lost in the conversation about the Trek fans, and there's... There's the rabid groups, like the three of us. And then there's... But the fact is, Star Trek was an enormously popular television show for the world. All the people who enjoyed Star Trek were not necessarily rabid Trek fans. And that's what I think Orville has, too, is that Orville is a show that has its rabid fan base, but then also it's a show anybody can watch. And that, to me, is kind of what makes it special, is that... We're not so lost in our own canon and the details of our universe that somebody can't turn on an episode and figure out what's going on and enjoy it and hopefully laugh at it, be moved by it, whatever. Very true.
1: I mean, we're all self-proclaimed rabid Star Trek fans. (laughs) I saw that you worked on Star Trek Enterprise and that kind of led into working on the Orville a bit. I was curious if it's like a dream come true of sorts to get to work on something that you Love and that so many other people love, like the fact that you get to work on something that you are a fan of.
2: Oh yeah, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember. I'll always remember when I I've been a Star Trek fan since I was in junior high school, and so that that day that I mean, I got the job on on Enterprise. I had this job interview with Brian and Braga and a couple of the other writers, and it went well. And then, then I had a meeting with Rick Berman, and that went well. And then I got the job offer. And so I'm driving into the, the gates of Paramount for my first day of work, and I have to call into Brandon's office to just make sure that the pass was there. Where do I park? And uh, so I'm on the phone, and the assistant was giving me the information, and then he says, "Oh, and David, welcome to Star Trek." And uh, you know that that moment's still a very memorable moment. And the great piece of that story is that that assistant was Terry Metalis, who is now running the card. Wow. And <laughs> Terry was also like, he was saying that to me. We didn't know each other at all, but he knew what a big fan I was. He was a giant fan. That's why he was working there. And that idea that you can get to play a part in those things that you've been watching and reading about since childhood and and actually contribute and, and be a part of that is, it's incredibly gratifying.
1: I was also thinking like reading the comics and then also obviously watching the show, what is it like seeing your ideas on paper and then seeing them brought to life in, you know, obviously right. with sci-fi alone, but just in general?
2: Yeah, no, that's obviously for creative people who want to have a creative career. and The idea that you would get to see these things to fruition is really gratifying. It can be frustrating, too, in that these are all collaborative efforts. And it's not always exactly what you want. But in the case of the Orville, I mean, I really did get to work on something from the beginning that I made some big contributions to. And then and then the comic, I'd always wanted to write comics. So the Orville gave me this opportunity to write comics. And that has just been start to finish, just a great, wonderful experience. I love the artists involved, David Cabeza, and the other artists involved. And then I'm, I'm writing these scripts that very, in a very detailed way lay out what happens. And I'm the only writer of the comics. i run ideas by Seth, but he's never ever said, don't do that. He's always like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And uh, so that's a very exciting thing to see your things sort of brought to life, brought to fruition. I think what's great in the computer age is that People just starting out can do that on their own. I mean, they can do comics online, they can do movies and special effects. It's kind of amazing really, what's yes. available to people, but, yeah. but it's nice to get paid for it, too. Yeah. Right? yeah, that is true. It's always a,
1: a special touch. <laughs> I also love that the tone of the Orville is dramatic and lighthearted. So there's right. both veins in storylines. Do you find that it's easy to write dramatic or more light humorous storylines?
2: Well, you know, for the most part now, Orville is drama. It's drama with a light touch. The show started out maybe with a little more focus on the comedy, and that was something Seth talked about. That's really where he lived and and where his confidence was. But as time went on, he realized that the fans didn't need the hard jokes, and he didn't want to be doing that. And so we we went away from that. There's still plenty of character comedy in the show, and I think that to me, I've never really written a, a very heavy drama like Law & Order SVU or, or Homeland or, you know, mm-hmm. these are all great shows that I've enjoyed, but I've never personally written that. I've, I've always, most of my resume is in comedy or in the sci-fi genre. I mean, Star Trek Enterprise was not full heavy drama. There was sort of the sci-fi element and a lightness in character relationships. So for me, it's that's what I do. I think about the people who write that really dark stuff and I'm like, I don't know how you do that. I have to make a joke. Someplace.
0: I think that serves, too, as a better entry point. If I want someone to watch Star Trek now, I almost feel like I'd make them watch the Orville first because I could be like, this goes down a little easier.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, I, I've watched some of the new shows, the new Star Trek shows, and I think that they're amazing looking and great cast and very well written. But I do wonder about that. I'm a Star Trek fan, so I understand the context of everything. I always wondered if a new fan, but they keep making more of them. So that must be the case.
1: It must be be doing well if they keep pumping them out. So, and I'm happy about that.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: From a fan's perspective, it makes me so happy to see the Orville and Star Trek coming back into the Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's very exciting that you can watch a new episode of a a sci-fi show whenever you want. There's always something new. It's great. Yeah.
1: So in the writing room, is there anything that the writers all do to get into the mood or the groove into writing a script?
2: Um, you mean like music and drinks? What, what are you just like, what? I don't know.
1: Like, is there just like a, a rhythm to it or or anything special, like a a routine?
2: The schedule dictates the mood. Uh, we we got to get this done. You know, you're, you're always thinking about the schedule. You got to get the scripts written so that they can get shot. And then you're also thinking about what have you done before? So an idea might come up that you then dismiss because it's too similar to something you've already done. Or uh, you come up with an idea that then is a continuation of something you've done. You realize, oh, this builds on what we've done. But it's really that. It's really you have a job to do. You've got to get this work done.
1: That makes sense. And I also know you've done a lot of different jobs. You've worn a lot of different hats in this industry from acting to voice work to writing to producing. Is it difficult to switch from one thing to the other?
2: I'm not an actor, Katie. I just I know, but I saw that
1: you had done a couple things.
2: <laughs> I'm not. I'm not an actor. I've done voices in a couple of things, mm-hmm. but that's because I sound like Ray Romano. So Seth does a Ray Romano <laughs> gag. He casts me as Ray Romano. I um, or I'll pitch a joke and it sounds funny coming out of my mouth. So Seth will say, "Oh yeah, let me." Uh, I played a Star Trek nerd on a Family Guy episode. That wasn't a stretch. Really. Um, <laughs> And the producing and the other things all come out of being a writer. The producing things that I'm involved with have to do with the fact that I'm one of the writers involved in the show. Mm-hmm.
0: And you also helped develop the characters of the Krill for the show. Yes. So I'm glad we're having this conversation again because things have illuminated (laughs) somewhat uh. Uh, between the homework and between the last (laughs) time we talked. And now I actually did a complete rewatch of Deep Space Nine. I hadn't since like I had first watched it. I'm assuming the name is a take on the Krell
2: from Forbidden Planet. It's not, actually. Seth came up with the name Krill, oh. and he's not this giant Forbidden Planet fan. I'm not sure he's ever seen it. Wow. Um, we'll give him homework. Yeah. So, no, I was making you guys do homework. Yeah. I can't make, can't make him do homework. I, uh, and Kitty didn't do the homework.
1: I was going to say, it makes <laughs> me feel <laughs> a little better, but still, I'll do it. I'll, I promise. I don't care.
2: After this, we may never speak again. <laughs> I, uh, um, but no, I don't think so. I don't know, actually, where Seth got the name. He mentioned it you know, he wrote the pilot script and they're in the pilot. He and I had talked at length about this sort of alien species whose Bible dictated everything for them and that anybody who wasn't in their Bible wasn't worth living. Hmm. And that was really sort of where the idea started was based on sort of fundamentalist religions. Okay, And that's idea of a fundamentalist religion in outer space. And that was the beginning, starting point. As as times got on, we filled it in with a little more than that. But that's really where it started. And the first season episode that I wrote, Krill, that was like us deciding at that moment, okay, let's try to fill these people in. Let's try to fill this world in. And, you know, it took us down a great road with Telea and Life on That Ship. And that also was John Kassar's first episode as a director. So that, oh, that's, that's right. So that first episode of the Orville as a director and led to his long relationship with the show.
0: Yeah, at first I thought the Krill were kind of an amalgamation of Romulan and Klingon, but after watching Deep Space Nine, I'm seeing a large connection to the Jem'Hadar, both aesthetically and in their, like, worshipping of this god in the way that the Jem'Hadar did the founders, kind of unquestioningly.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, there is a physical similarity to the Jem'Hadar. Again, I don't know... That Seth was in those decisions of making those aesthetic choices, I think it was more lizard look mm-hmm. than Jim Hadar. That that was what was sort of guiding it. But the thing with the founders, it's different because for us, it's this idea that this society is just a deeply religious society mm. and is guided by its religion and its fundamentalist religion. So that that was more of where we were going with the krill. Speaking
0: of their religion. The name Avis as their god was that
2: chosen for the abundance of jokes that would result from it, or or did that come from some other place? You know, it's funny. I don't remember when when we came up with that, but it did give us a lot of jokes.
0: <laughs> it is ripe with them for sure.
2: I don't think so. I think we came up with the name first, and then realized all the jokes we could get from. It. Oh wow! Yeah.
1: So I grew up and watched Star Trek with my dad. It's like one of my favorite memories from being a kid. And I always loved, now as an adult, I appreciate it more, the the philosophy that's weaved into every episode. Yeah, sure. And it got me thinking about certain episodes in the Orville, such as Deflectors. And from a writing perspective, is it difficult to tackle those more difficult topics?
2: Well, you definitely take some care.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You definitely want to understand issues having to do with if you're going to take on an issue that has to do with sexuality, as that episode did, you want to be careful. You mm-hmm. want to be thoughtful. You want to make sure that you're not just saying the same thing that isn't true to the people who struggle with these things. And so that's more of like what it is. It's like it takes some care. and But that's the way it is, I think, with all our episodes, is that you want the audience to understand that you really took some care in how you approach this. And that was... Um, I really love that episode, but it it took, it is a way in which that episode probably took more care than the season finale where I wrote The Road Not Taken, which was more sort of this full on like space epic story. Deflectors was more internal, had a real sort of character conflict and talking about the society. And so, yeah, I guess I would answer it is harder because you want to take some more care with it.
1: Yeah, that was one of the things that, Rob, I enjoy doing this show with you is that we get to like marinate in it and talk about it. And I just appreciate that the show tackles things that's more than just surface level.
0: Yeah, I've noticed, too, that in a lot of those type of heavy internal episodes, the show doesn't tell you the perspective that you're supposed to come away with. It asks the question right, and then just lets you, like Katie said, marinate in it yourself. Is that very purposeful?
2: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting too, like you talk about, again, like the fundamentalist episodes of what we're talking about, the krill being this fundamentalist species. Some people say, oh, they're going after Christians and others say, oh, they're going after Muslims or, oh, they're going after Jews or then we've, we've succeeded. Everybody's sort of seeing it however they want to see it, but we're not picking a, a side other than we don't like fundamentalist religion Yeah, in any context. So we are, we're landing there. But we're not taking on any any one religion, any one nationality, anything like that. So that, yes, the idea is sort of it's food for thought is how we look at it. Seth has some strong point of views about religion and the importance of science. And some of them are maybe connected to politics. But in general, the show isn't going to fall on some superficial political side. Mm -hmm. It's going to try to just present the issues. There's always a point of view. Acceptance—that's always our point of view. And so, to me, some people are not accepting, so then they would disagree with us. Everybody else <laughs> thinks they're accepting. That makes sense.
0: Speaking of the road not taken, which you brought up, yeah, there are some heavy references in that to Star Wars. Was there a conscious decision that when you're doing an alternate timeline?
2: Well, what what references? What are you talking about?
0: <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> There is, I mean, for one, the attire and the kind of general aesthetic of it feels a lot more rebel than like clean uh-huh. federation or union. Okay. There is a moment in, oh, is it 54, the station they go visit, and there's uh-huh. a little thing that pops out of the door, uh-huh. just like Jabba's palace. It's the effort. Yeah, 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 effort. yeah, yeah. There we go.
2: That might've been intentional.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if there was, uh, with an alternate timeline story, Because the aesthetic becomes so different, it's like, well, let's take some cues from the other quote unquote big sci fi franchise.
2: You know, I think that that's interesting. I think there are other Star Wars references throughout Orville too. I don't think that there are like some of our music might sound like it, and you know, I mean, it's not it's not a clean thing of okay, we do Star Trek every week now. We're going to do Star Wars. We're influenced by The Twilight Zone. We're influenced by Black Mirror. We're influenced by all the things that that are out there. We're influenced by science fiction we've read, but, you know, it all gets thrown in the pot. I think that there was a sort of a bang-up nature to that episode that made it feel more like Star Wars in some ways. I mean, just because there were so many dogfights, so many chases, so much special effects on that episode, that I think that it had almost a, a more Star Wars feel to it. But it wasn't an effort to make more Star Wars references. Although, yeah, if it's sticking set out, I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't say that that was influenced by it's probably
0: the big one that stuck out to me for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's also in that episode, which fans were very happy to see, was the return of Halston Sage as yes. Alara Katan. Yeah, yeah, was that appearance something that you wrote in hoping that Halston would return, or had she expressed interest prior and then the cameo came?
2: Well, Halston's a She's a friend of ours. Yeah. I mean, she didn't leave under bad circumstances and she was in communication with someone. might've been Seth who asked her, do you want to come back just for one episode? She said, absolutely. And I think she, she might've even said that when she left. It's like, I'm happy to come back. So it wasn't like it was, I wouldn't have written it in the script if we weren't, because the thing really sort of turns on her and we have that stuff between her and John. We're not going to do that unless we know she's going to do it. Makes sense.
1: Speaking of the comic I was shocked, but also very pleased when I saw the kiss between John and Alara in digressions.
2: But, so you were shocked, but didn't we reference that something had gone on between the two of them? And-
1: yes, but I think just because it's never happened, it, yeah. it satisfied a part of my soul when I All right, saw satisfied. it. Okay, yeah. so
2: shocked in a good way.
1: Yeah, shocked in a good way. Like okay. I didn't expect it when I turned the page.
2: Yeah, we had
0: talked about how it's very suggested in the episode, but since we never saw it, there's no like official confirmation of it.
1: Mm -hmm. So when the comic
0: does that, we were like, hey!
1: Yeah, it was official.
2: Well, those two comics, I mean, digressions, it was a real exercise in trying to find the connective tissue between the two episodes, because we'd come up with none of that that was in the comic. It was all me trying to make... Wow. Trying to fill in the blanks, because we broke the way Road Not Taken got broken was we were actually working on the story for Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, and we couldn't figure out the ending. That episode was similar in some ways to Second Chances, this uh, Next Generation episode where mm-hmm. the other version of Riker comes back, and they had that great ending in that episode where he stays around, and he goes off and lives his whole life in the Federation, and then it shows up in Deep Space Nine. and. um we didn't want to do that just because that's the same ending. And we want, we were doing our own thing with the episode. And I suggested, why doesn't she go back and change history? And then I started to realize that, oh, if she doesn't go out with Ed, Ed doesn't get the Orville, Claire doesn't end up on the Orville, Claire's kids don't end up on the Orville and Isaac doesn't turn and the Kalon take over. And that all happened in the writer's room. I remember being very excited that I'm, wait, wait, I have to get the whole thing out. Uh, and I could see sort of Seth like nodding and his eyes widening and realizing, oh, this is a great way to do our version now of like a show like Yesterday's Enterprise, which was one of my favorite. Next Gen, the alternate bad timeline. Uh, but what I've said before, which I think is interesting is in Yesterday's Enterprise and Next Generation, the history turned over the fact that the Enterprise C didn't get to try to rescue Narendra 3. In our universe, the history changes because Ed didn't get laid. (laughs) Uh, And so that's the difference between the Orville and Star Trek right there. (laughs) But anyway, so that's how that episode came about and we started working out the story and okay, we want Kelly on the ship with the rest of the crew and they're together and we never explain how they got together. We didn't even think about. Mm. We didn't even think you know what have Ed and Gordon been doing for the six months that the Kylons have been taking over the galaxy, and then we had the dialogue of Ed had never gotten a ship, that he's running the Eridani Epsilon outpost, and then everything else I had to make up, but I was trying to be really careful to connect it in a way that made sense. So it wasn't. It really was kind of this thing that I hobbled together to connect the two episodes. But I, I, w- I was happy with how it came out.
1: It came out great. Did you have to make like a flow chart that you had in front of you while you were writing it? Uh, I was
2: outlining it. So in a certain way, and as I was outlining it, I was having a lot of thoughts. There's actually something in there. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not even going to hint at it. <laughs> but that was affected by something that's in season three. Oh. Ooh. Man. And and there's like something happens at a certain point and it's small. And it's like somebody might question, well, why didn't that that could have happened at any point? And it's happening because of like, oh, Mortis. I can't do that here because of it's not a time travel thing. It's just that it's something that we introduced in season three that affected this. Okay. And it really was this kind of complicated thing of just trying to make sure that it was really taking a lot of care. And if I told you what that thing was, you'd be like, I don't think you had to worry about that. I don't <laughs> think I'm going to be go sure. And, uh, and, and so, for instance, figuring out exactly, I really did have to f- look and look at the order of the episode. When did everything happen? Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out when could Ed have been on a ship because I wanted to show him on a ship with that other captain, but then he's got to get the job on the space station. So figuring all that stuff out, yeah, there was, it wasn't a flowchart, but it was... It took a while.
0: Yeah, because you're revisiting a lot of those episodes yeah. and, and those little key moments that we saw. And there's just like like an alternate timeline goes. There's just that twist.
2: Yes, right. Oh, And uh, bringing Cassius back, I wanted to bring him back. I like that guy. I thought he was a really good actor and I thought he was a good character. He was
0: great. I love him too.
2: Yeah. And uh, the fact that he's a, a good husband to Kelly, that he believes her, all that I thought would be fun things, and it gave me somebody to kill.
1: Yeah, that was rough.
2: (laughs) Were you emotionally affected by that?
1: I was. I I had emotional damage from that one.
2: (laughs) Well, that I succeeded.
1: No, I mean, I
2: wanted, like, again, we sort of see Kelly on that ship and that idea that, like, she's lost her husband, I thought really added added a level Mm. that you could still see in Adrienne. She didn't have that when she did the episode, but you could sort of see in Adrienne's performance, she was really dark. Yeah. And uh, that she's really lost things because she changed the past.
1: That's one of the things I like about the comics is that they feel like episodes in between the actual episodes that I can read. I'm curious, what was the catalyst for the comic being created? What What was the spark that got it going?
2: Uh, I said, Seth, we have to do comics. And he said, yes, go, go ahead. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, um, and it was really me sort of taking advantage of the situation that I had, which was You know, I used to read Star Trek comics. I was always really disappointed in them. Star Trek comics that came out in the 70s and 80s, I found to be really disappointing. So I sort of started from that place of like, what do I want these comics to be? And then the studio licensed it to Dark Horse. They went to a bunch of companies. I think Dark Horse was actually the only one that was interested. And they do a lot of tie-in comics. They do like Stranger Things Mm -hmm. and a couple of other things. So they were into it and they were obviously happy to have one of the writers of the show, doing it. And we did a a tryout. I wrote a scene as a comic book scene. It was actually a scene from Krill. It was that opening scene on the bridge where they're approaching the Krill battleship. And I, I wrote it as a comic book, like in comic book format. And we gave it to like five or six artists who then had to draw it. So it was like an audition. And in my mind, David Cabeza nailed it right away. But I gave them all to Seth it was actually, we were shooting and I go to him in Video Village and in between shots, I say, hey, take a look at these artists. We got to pick one for the comic. And he's like, it's this guy, right? I mean, it was like so obvious. So David, such a talented artist and sort of capturing the look of our actors and the ships. And It's a beautiful comic from his art. And, but anyway, so then it was just me writing stories. And, and I appreciate you saying they feel like episodes because that's what I always wanted. I wanted that feeling that I never got from Star Trek comics. And I think It's a subtle thing, but I think the thing that I do that probably does make it feel like a TV show is I don't have thought balloons.
1: Mm, Yeah.
2: It's all dialogue and action. And I don't have too many captions or stage direction filling things in. As a result, the stories have to be really lean because you can't move ahead in time too much without those extra additions. But I do think that my reliance on like, I need dialogue and visuals to tell this story, makes it as close as you can get to feeling like television. Now that there would be comic book creators who would say, well, then you're not really doing a service to the comic book venue. And I and they're right. The purpose of this comic is as an addition to the TV show. It doesn't exist on its own. And I think that's okay. I, that's purposeful. There are much better comics out there. I'm not <laughs> like people who really push the boundaries of the format, but This, to me, was always supposed to be some more Orville episodes. Mm -hmm. That's the way I always looked at it.
0: So I've seen what TV scripts look like, but I can't say I've ever seen a script for a comic book. So I'm not really sure what the format of that all is. But when you are writing, how specific do you have to be about things like visuals?
2: You make a choice. So there are comic book writers who sort of are very general and leave it up to the artist to figure out how to lay out the page. And then there's the way that I do it for this comic, which is I am I am almost directing every shot. But David is a very talented artist. And if he comes back to me and says, this doesn't quite work. How about this? You know, I'm very open and collaborative with him. But in general, I'm very specific about, you I have a comic right here with me. Nice. This flashback sequence from Digression's. I figured out what was going to be in each panel. I figured out what the camera angle was going to be. I wrote what their dialogue is, or in this case, this is a voiceover and how many panels would be on the page. Oh, wow. And sometimes like in this, I probably, I didn't say the exact layout of these panels. For instance, David figured that out based on the number of panels that I wanted and the number of shots I wanted. And so he'll be placing them in a certain way. And then I'm really, not at this point, not giving David too much direction on the expressions he gets it from context about how people should look. And he adds his own spin on that, too. So it was a great partnership. Yeah.
1: One of the things I like about the comics is we learn a lot about the characters from the show in more detail, but we also get new characters and new alien races. Uh Are there any that you've written that you'd like to see on the show at some point?
2: Well, I'm pretty clear in all the cases of these are characters we couldn't do. There's the one planet where they go to where it's them basically in makeup. I forgot the name of that one. But in general, like the aliens that I have
0: the kind of bird like looking ones, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. the, yeah.
2: I wanted in this first comic to have an alien race that we're never going to do anything like this. We'll never be able to pull it off. It's also cute, it's almost too cute for the television show. Mm-hmm. And I felt like comics, it's okay to do something cute. Chalmi, his race, and the last comic that I did, same thing. I wanted something like we would never do this. So I wanted the comics to have their own races. I wanted a reason for it to be in the comic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something we have speculated on a little bit when we had our discussions is when races like that came up, we were like, oh, this is so cool. This would be so expensive (laughs) to do. so hard
1: to do for a show. yeah. Yeah.
0: But it's nice that you have the option.
2: No, it was intentional on my part, was like, if we're going to do a comic, that you're going to do some aliens that maybe you would never see in real life. And and also that gives you a reason that the comic has its own specialness. Mm.
0: You mentioned Chami too. When you have a character like that, is there a full description you write or do you kind of just let David run wild with like a bunch of ideas of what that might be?
2: Well, see, I I really wanted... That Chalmis race is an homage to Forbidden Planet. The race? Really? So, do you remember the. And, and Katie, you're not going to. Yeah,
1: on. I'm just going to sit here quietly and.
2: <laughs> the long extinct race or. A long extinct race. Like we never really see it in Forbidden Planet, right. except Dr. Morbius mentions the architecture. So, there's sort of a squat architecture. And then the monster from the id that we see in the force field. Okay. It's two legs and it's this big. So, I. I think I gave Dave that as a reference, but that I wanted a sweet version of that because you, we don't know what the crow looked like. Right. I was making sort of assumptions and I saw so I wanted the sort of squat thing on two feet. Okay, We added the cute face and then he was furry. Yeah. These were elements, but it was sort of a visual homage to the crow because there is sort of a, in that story, a connection to that, an homage to that movie as well. Like the idea of he's controlling things with his mind. Like that Yeah, was, that
0: was the other thing I was gonna ask about is that if Chalmy's yeah. doing that with the subconscious control and then Morbius right. is doing it with the machine, it's the same idea there.
2: It's the same idea, although I went further and said that it was a genetic thing. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't the power of their mind, which is the sci-fi idea of Forbidden Planet. In this, it's genetics. It's like these machines have been programmed to respond to the right genetically appropriate race. Okay. So it's different, but there was definitely sort of a an homage to it.
0: When you're writing all these stories and we talked about how much they are very much like episodes that we didn't get to see on TV. Do you ever bump into one where you go, I should save that for television because that would just work better over there or for any reason?
2: No, I mean, usually what happens is, so for instance, in fact, these are ideas that I've had sitting, some, a couple of them are ideas I've had sitting around. Okay. Because they never made it on television. So for instance, when I worked at Star Trek enterprise, in the third season, I pitched two stories. One ended up being the episode North Star, where they're on the Western planet. The other was basically the episode that is New Beginnings, is the crash ship that destroyed the planet, and that then that is going to shoot down okay. Enterprise unless they can shut... You know, the whole thing was... I, I pitched that idea. Brannon liked that idea, but Rick Berman felt it was too similar to some aspects of the Star Trek Voyager pilot. Oh. Which I, I didn't make that connection. And so I always had that idea. I always loved the idea of this wrecked ancient ship that is providing food and life to this aliens whose planet it destroyed. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Tala becoming a superhero was something we talked about in the writer's room, actually, for Alara in season one. It was never an idea that Seth took to. So I kind of knew we were never going to do it. Mm. And I'm a big Zorro fan. So the idea of her being a flying Zorro, I thought was great. And she loved it. Uh, Jessica, who was just over the moon over getting to be a comic book Zorro. But um, she
0: bummed it all. She didn't get to wear the costume.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think she was. I think she was. <laughs> so it's more about like, there's some unused ideas. Okay. That I've gotten to use. But no, I've never really come up with anything that I thought, would be something we do on the show. And I don't know why. I don't know how I know that. But I, I just feel like, no, these are comic book stories. They're not, they're not going to be uh, something we'd ever use. Okay.
0: Since you brought up Jessica and Tala, between Heroes and the episode Deflectors, you've probably done the most work in fleshing out her character since she's uh, shown up. Is that coincidental? Or is there something special about her character to you?
2: Yeah, that's probably just coincidental. Okay. I think that Deflectors seem like a natural... Episode to involve her as we were developing the idea. And it was like, oh, this really goes with her character. But I think that even though I wrote that script, I haven't contributed more to Tala's character than any of the other writers on the staff. We all work together. So anything that's in my script is really reflective of conversations that we've had. That backstory, I do love the backstory of her being on the ship and the idea of these aliens that are somehow connected to Talaeans, I thought was really cool and fun. And her being this sort of hero was a blast. But no, I don't think I've contributed any more to Tala than anybody else. Certainly, again, it starts with Seth and it's really his character.
0: I know you uh, listened to our discussion of digressions and artifacts and you had mentioned that we might have missed some Easter eggs. I was wondering if there were any that we missed (laughs) that you might be able to share with us.
2: Oh, you guys missed a lot.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) There's probably so many in there. We'd have to spend hours on it.
2: Did you guys talk about Captain Mosley? Who, who, who the Weaver, is right? based on? No, that's uh, Captain Barrett. Barrett. Okay. Mosley. No, I don't think we did. You didn't notice that he might have looked like Yafit Koto? I don't know who that is. Well, he was an alien with Sigourney Weaver.
1: Oh, <laughs> I know what you're talking about now.
2: I think I've seen it like once. So, you've only seen an <laughs> alien once. Well, so you missed that Easter egg. You missed also their names, Barrett and Mosley are I'm just going to make you look them up later <laughs> are, re- are references to other roles that they've played that's fair I'm not saying that the looks legally I'm not saying the looks oh, oh of course, of course not. Never. No. but I think that you know there's a lot of like faces in there it was, it was interesting that you did catch LaMarche which was named after Maurice LaMarche it was yes oh man I love that guy so much who I worked with on Futurama so the guy whose professor didn't look familiar to you. He
0: did, but I could not place the face.
2: Well, I added a mustache, so he looked less like him, but...
0: It was kind of killing me the whole book. I was like, this looks like somebody, and I can't think of it.
2: <laughs> what I'd say is that there's an episode of Star Trek the Next Generation that involves one of Picard's old teachers coming back. So he was a bit of an homage to that. An actor named Norman Lloyd. And uh, I was doing a bit of a, a riff on that, but he's passed away, so I, I guess I'm okay using his. And my story is different than that episode, although it did involve an ancient race, but I make my guy a complete yeah. <laughs> 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 Which you guys pointed out on the, on the podcast. He's very sketchy all the way through. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's see. Well, you guys didn't mention that this was Onyx from... Uh, our bartender. Like, I felt like you guys didn't get that. The... Oh,
0: yeah. I didn't know that it needed to be said.
2: <laughs> all right. I was like, wait, did they not know that was on it? Oh, totally. There's an Easter egg that nobody's going to get. Captain Griffith, this is very, this bearded guy. He's based on Howard Griffith, who's our producer on, or the guy who handles all the physical production. Seth named the character after him. So I just had the artist draw him. He was thrilled. But the doctor, I don't think Kabeza quite captured the actor, but I sort of had based him on uh, Dr. Boyce from the original Star Trek pilot. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's a few other things in there, too. I'm just thinking. Now, you want to know whether I'm referencing Star Wars. You have the quote in there, right? Which quote?
0: I think that's one we talked about. I have a bad feeling about this.
2: Uh, that's in there. But there's also something that's even more uh, more of a deep dive. So this scene with Gordon and Ed, where Gordon said, "Kalon troops have entered the base, K-Lon troops have entered the base. That's it. Let's go. He says, come on. That's it. Yeah. Let's go. So if you watch it, Empire Strikes Back. This is going to be super specific, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you watch the Empire Strikes Back, yeah. Han goes to get Leia. She's still in the command center and it's wrecked. And you hear this announcement. Interior troops have entered the base. Oh my God. And then he grabs her and says, Come on, let's go. So that was a reference to <laughs> that's that. That's fantastic. There's a lot of that stuff in here. I could probably uh, <laughs> but
0: and that's just all live and rent free up there, or <laughs> that's live and rent free. <laughs> there you yeah. Go.
2: Yeah. Using up my space. <laughs>
1: that's a lot of detail though.
2: It really is. Yeah. You know, I nobody seems to get it. So it's, <laughs> I don't know, but it adds a nice little emotion, like Gordon said, Come on, we that's it, you've done enough kind of thing. So There's probably some more stuff, too, like that. but Well, and then I think you guys mentioned in in, uh, Artifacts, Risk is Our Business. Did you guys mention that?
0: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: That was me really going to the edge. That was inspired by a question we got at Comic-Con, where somebody had referenced the episode where they're watching Seinfeld at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and the person in the audience said, so if Seinfeld exists in this universe, does that mean Star Trek exists in this universe? And Seth said, security, please remove that <laughs> uh, But I thought, all right, let's go right, right to the end. I don't actually say it, but I, I go right to the end.
1: And I just have a question for my own curiosity, because there were some alien references in right. comic. Yeah. Are you a big sci-fi horror fan?
2: I've certainly seen some. Yeah. Is there something you wanted to... Like, I'm
1: just curious if you were like a fan of like Alien, Event Horizon, like those kinds of movies. Or... I've seen
2: them all. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a giant sci-fi geek. Pretty much any movie that has a spaceship in it, I will watch. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I respect that.
2: (laughs) And it's hard to remember that most of, I'm not young, and most of my youth, there wasn't a lot. There really wasn't a lot. There were Star Trek reruns, there was Lost in Space reruns, and then there were whatever 50s science fiction movies there were that involved the spaceship. And then Star Wars comes out in 1977 and changes everything. Mm. But up to that point, there really, 2001, which for me as a kid was too slow. I very much appreciate it now, but I didn't then. So that idea of like up from when I was born in the early 60s to 1977, I made sure to see anything that involved the spaceship, Flash Gordon serials, like anything. Yeah. Because there wasn't much.
1: I'm the same way. So yeah, with horror, I like horror a lot. And like, I love sci-fi horror. So I can't like Sunshine, any of those movies. I'm like, oh, it takes place in space. I'd like to see where this goes.
2: (laughs) Sunshine's great. Sunshine's a great movie. And yeah, Alien was, to me, Alien created a whole subgenre of science fiction, of sort of working class science fiction. People who are like working for a living in space. We didn't have that. It existed in the literature, but it never had been in movies and now it led to a whole other movie genre of guys and women doing hard labor in outer space.
1: Yeah, I do have some fun questions. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I also want to know, I feel like most people have a Star Trek captain. I grew up with Next Gen, so Picard is very much my captain. Right. But do you have a captain?
2: Yeah, it's got to be Kirk. Yeah. I mean, I grew up Star Trek. I also wrote the autobiography of James C. Kirk. You guys know I wrote mm-hmm. that and, mm-hmm. and the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard. But, like, Kirk, to me, was that's the show I got into as a kid and watched religiously. I mean, I love Next Gen. It's a great show. But the Kirk fisticuffs, seducing alien woman guy, that, that's cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: James Vaughn in space.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: It's kind of wild that pretty soon we're going to have a third actor playing that role.
2: It's so amazing. I mean, I love J.J.'s first movie. I thought that was a great movie. And it was great to see the reinvention of those characters. I am frustrated as a Star Trek fan that we're still stuck in prequel land. There, it's like because you're so I'm so into that canon yep. that it's like you're so confined, but you know the audience doesn't know. Him, so, it'll be, but yeah, it'll be fascinating to see somebody else play that character. I mean, it's, uh, I'll be interested to see what what chip he's on and all that stuff. Mm. So, yeah, but I thought Chris Pine did a great job. Fantastic, I, I yeah. It. Yeah. Loved him as Kirk. I thought he was great. Uh,
1: if you were a part of the crew of the Orville, what would be your dream role on the ship?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, is that a fun question, Katie? I don't know. That... I think it's fun. Like,
1: would you want to fly the ship or actually be in command? <laughs> It'd probably be pretty stressful to work on the Orville at times. <laughs>
2: I think it would be really stressful. I think that, like, historians sit in my room, called out every once in a while, I got to get to a planet I mean, like, I always thought that on the original Star Trek, there was that historian character who ended up with Khan and uh, they got a historian on the show. Yeah. That seems like a good job. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Work with the dolphins and cetacean ops, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think my last question is, how do you find time to do all of this? (laughs)
2: what exactly am I doing Katie I'm even talking to you do I have time I have time yeah (laughs) no I know but you do
1: a lot of you wait you do a lot of things and it's it's really neat to see like you write books you write scripts for shows and yeah you do a lot yeah
2: you know I think that having a mortgage helps uh keeping you going motivation (laughs) I think that I have been doing a long time I've been a professional writer since 1988 so that It's a long time. And so it may look like I'm doing a lot at once, but it's been spread out over a period of time. But then also just the idea that I've gotten the opportunity to do what I've gotten to do. I don't want to miss that opportunity. I definitely feel very lucky that I get to do what I do. And so I don't want to miss that opportunity or ever take it for granted. I'm always trying to do uh, new things.
1: Yeah. I very much appreciate all that you for sci-fi. Oh, thanks, <laughs> so Katie. Thank you for being a part of that world.
2: Thank the sci-fi world for having me. <laughs> uh... Uh,
0: and speaking of your time, we don't want to take up too, too much. Oh, uh, that's because... fine.
2: Wait, did you, no more questions about the comics. I just want to make sure we, before mm. we've covered it all. Though. No?
1: Do you have a favorite of the comics you've written?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I, um, I did like that story of the Ed and Kelly go down to the planet that's going to remove itself from the universe. Oh,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Launch date. That to me was a cool thing, and it's actually something that I'd already come up with. It's there's a version of it actually in my uh, Picard autobiography, but I fleshed it out a little bit more here, and I think it's more interesting in the comic than it was in there. But I just liked that idea of like setting up something you think it's the Death Star, and then that's obviously Star Wars reference, but then it isn't. It was a fun way to sort of comment on society. I thought
0: dark ending on that one too
2: very dark very yeah. good twist dark ending on there yeah. yeah
0: you don't get them all the time but when they hit they hit hard yep, yep. <laughs> there is in new beginnings mm-hmm. there's the burton yes oh right is that a connection to lavar burton
2: it is not it, is, it not. is a reference to a british explorer by the name of richard francis burton who discovered or is believed to have discovered the source of the nile river okay and he was a kind of a very colorful character himself but I liked that idea of referencing an explorer. It's a great movie. It's kind of forgotten. I think kind of hard to find, but I really enjoyed it. It's called Mountains of the Moon. Okay. And the actor Patrick Bergen plays this explorer. And it's a really just tough story of like what exploration was like in the 19th century. And so that was more of what the reference was. You might want to look in uh, Lieutenant Hodges in that episode. may have been based on a famous person. Not the name, but the face. Okay. I
1: feel like I need to go back through I and like, start <laughs> the detective Fine work. Tooth comb. Yeah. Looking for Easter eggs.
2: I'm going to be dragging a comb
0: across the desert, like in Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have
1: like one of those walls and I'll have all these things tied together. And
2: <laughs> Most of the characters, I was treating it like we were guest casting. Like that you were. Mm. So I would, from a legal point of view, I can't actually say who I was... If they're still alive now, Yaffet yeah, Kodo passed away, so it's, so it's okay. Uh, but uh, the comic book company never wanted me to say publicly who I based it on. So,
1: I mean, from a, a perspective of writing, it gives you the ability to do a dream cast if you ever wanted to. Well,
2: that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's, yeah. I was like, yeah, I will we'll put him. in. I mean, and I put Hodges is somebody who's much older now than than he is in the comic. Like, it's not even a a real casting, but it's mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> I know we could go through the Easter eggs for a while, I'm sure. but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but we'll start to wrap things up here and we can let you get back to your life. And no,
2: thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> listeners can't see this either, but I just want to say that I appreciate some of the things I'm seeing in the background of your office there. So you're representing both of my favorite fandoms in your All office right, right now because you got the Enterprise over there on the wall uh, and right then you got there. the Batman cowl behind you and I'm a Batman massive cowl. Batman fan.
2: I think there's an Orville right next to the Batman cowl on my finger. I think, yep, that's the back yep. end of it, right? And then uh, right here above this finger is In Search Of, which was Leonard Nimoy's documentary series. Oh, wow. <laughs> which was from my childhood. Again, Yeah, there was no sci-fi, but Leonard Nimoy would do uh, this documentary series, so you listen to that. And then right above that is the DVD set of Six Million Dollar Man.
0: I have not seen that.
2: Never oh. seen that. It's not really worth it. Okay. <laughs> sometimes they don't hold up <laughs> so uh, oh my god no again it speaks it speaks to the dearth of like what we had as kids yeah to watch it was like this is as close as we get to a superhero show we're gonna watch it it wasn't good but we watched it
0: Well that feels like the superhero genre now like throw a rock and you're gonna hit an amazing superhero movie or tv show but it's when i was crazy. growing up it was like nothing we were just waiting for something
2: yeah, they really, I mean, the DC shows on CW, the Marvel shows, the movie. It's crazy. It's, it's too much to keep up. Yeah. Can't keep
0: up. Yeah.
1: It's a lot.
2: But it's, great. <laughs> yeah.
1: it's great.
0: Yeah. It I'm, is, not, it is. I'm, I'm not starting a whole other conversation now, though.
1: So.
0: <laughs> 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 um, but I just want to say thank you, especially since we had those tech issues in the first one. Your time is precious. And the fact that you would come back to spend it with us, I'm so eternally grateful for. I know Katie is, too. So thank you so, so much.
2: Well, it was a blast talking to you guys.
1: Thank you so much for taking time, and sure. I'm really looking forward to the next upcoming month. Oh my god,
2: yeah, season three. Well, I'll come back if you want in season three.
0: Oh, anytime, anytime. Yes. <laughs> All right, good. All right, well, take care, guys. All right, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at TheGeekGeneration.com.
1: If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at TheGeekGeneration.com slash support.
0: You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Pod and me at Logan.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at playkatieplay and on Twitch at KatiePetersPlays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E.
0: Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode.
1: Finally, questions and comments can be sent to Quantum Drive at thegeekgeneration.com.
0: We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in,
1: in the, the future. future.